Hey, everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is EQUITY, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined by two of my absolute favorites. I've got Natasha Mascarenas here. Natasha, how are you doing? Doing good. We were talking about pumpkin spice lattes before this, so I now know what I'm doing after we're done recording. And that's also why I'm glad we don't record the entire pre-show and put it on the internet. Uh, Danny Crichton's also here. Danny, how are you doing, my man? I'm doing all right. I, I recently found out that there's a, such a thing as a puppuccino at Starbucks, and I've decided yes. that that is the new low standard after the pumpkin spice latte. I mean, to be clear, I've never had a puppuccino, but I, I don't think it would be very good. I, I don't think it's for you. No, no. It's literally, a, I think, a cup of whipped cream. So actually, it is for us. I mean, that sounds like the best drink at Starbucks now. Maybe we should all just get those. <laughs> and it's free, apparently, with, with the order of another beverage. All right. Well, now that we've gone over how to get diabetes, uh, an outline uh, for the show for everybody. We're going to do this now at the top of the show, give kind of a rough look at where we're going so you can kind of track as we go. We're kicking off with a couple of notes about media, some startup rounds, some big news. Then we're going into housing, a couple of really interesting venture capital rounds there. We have a really cool accelerator before we wrap. And at the very end, the very end of the show, something fun that should make you laugh. So uh, it's going to be a good time. And we are going to start in the world of media. And Natasha, the biggest news this week was about a very short-lived company that put out short-lived clips. So for people who are behind, what has Quibi gone and done? So Quibi has gone and done um, death. <laughs> Quibi has spent nearly $2 billion in its attempt to create short bite video formats for people on the go as the past six months have been for all of us no one's really on the go and so this media platform has now shut down just after launching in the kind of the first innings of the pandemic yeah yeah i mean not a surprise i don't think any of the three of us were particularly bullish on quibi it felt like the wrong combination of founders it was a couple of what i would call suits from the hollywood and technology realm that came together to make content for for kids not really much of a match, Danny. A lot of money has gone, though. They're going to return, I think, about $350 million to investors, but certainly a fraction of the aggregate capital that went into this thing. No, absolutely. I mean, with $1.7 billion in, I mean, this is one of the largest bets we've ever seen, you know, in recent media history. And, and as we talked about a little bit on TechCrunch, you know, generally speaking, the companies that have been successful in media have been very slow buildups. You know, Netflix got started in the 90s, you know, mailing DVDs from mm -hmm. place to place. You know, it was competing. About, remember this? These red boxes. I think it was red letter or something like this. Red envelope. Red box. Yeah, yeah. It was like, yeah, red box. You know, that was where this started. And you, you know, you look at Netflix today. Yes, it has a multi-billion-dollar content budget, but it didn't start that way. 
you know, most of these services start either with an existing content library or kind of a new format like a TikTok or a YouTube or a Snapchat. Quibi just decided to do the median of everything and by Oof. doing that did nothing well. So they are going to return the money, which I think is smart. Somehow they're not going to get the tens of millions of dollars they spent on subway advertising and television and online advertising, which still covers the New York City subway even today. Saw it this morning. And so to me, it's it's got to be one of the largest and fastest collapses. I mean, Quibi was officially launched in April. Yeah. April. It's October. And a billion dollars disappeared and the company's failed. So so to me, it's, it's, it's a really sad story, uh, particularly in a week in which Billion Dollar Loser, the history of WeWork, was officially published this week. So, I mean, WeWork actually took quite a long time to lose its first billion bucks. And I, I think this has got to be a new record. Well, I think the idea was spend a lot of money, get a lot of expensive talent on the platform, have a broad draw across the population, and then have people sign up and then use that initial cash flow to keep the thing going. The issue was the content wasn't very good. No one went anywhere. You couldn't take screenshots. You couldn't meme it, which, which sounds dumb, but actually really matters if you want a show to spread culturally and therefore attract new eyeballs in. And they spent a lot of the money, Danny, to be clear, before they actually launched. That was in the production period and so forth. So it wasn't like they torched all inside the last six months. But it's kaput. On the VC side, Natasha, did you read this piece that showed who would put all the capital into the company? I was surprised at how few VCs we saw, essentially none, and how many kind of like corporate sources and then non-traditional investment vehicles were there. I wonder if that was a warning sign that the professional investors were kind of steering clear. Yeah, I mean, I think it was an easy to take to have when we first heard about Quibi that not, that it wasn't going to do well. I think Erin Griffith tweeted she only found three positive headlines of Quibi ever. And the kind of post-mortem <laughs> was written before the actual post-mortem had even happened. And so, yeah, I mean, it was I think it was even lazy to to like keep writing that story after a certain point. So I know we didn't after the first round, after they lost, I think 92% of their users when free trials expired. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think there was a huge adoption. Some some investors, for people who may not have followed along the whole time, we have Pegasus Tech Ventures, which invests on behalf of other corporate VC firms. Um, we have Facebook. We have Alibaba Group, Hollywood Studios International. And I mean, the founders themselves put tens of millions in it um, of their own capital. So they're going to lose a lot of money, too. Well, I think there's a couple of great reactions to what we saw. So on Twitter, uh, a variety of people pointed out that in this year so far, female founders have actually gotten less venture capital in 2020 than 2019. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But believe it or not, female founders have raised about $1.9 billion, or roughly the amount of raised by Quibi in its entirety. So this one failure <laughs> represents literally all the VC funding going to uh, the other gender, the XX gender, the better gender. And and the other one I, I actually got a little bit peeved by. So Andrew Chen, who's a uh, general partner at Andreessen, wrote, uh, he says it's gross how people are criticizing and trying to do all these hot takes around Quibi's failure. Building companies hard. Why celebrate a fail? And I have to say, you know, I, I, I truly believe you have to respect the hustle, but you don't have to respect the stupidity. Yep. It's okay to respect hard work that's smart, that's applied well, that's, that's best efforts. This never appeared to be a best efforts. People are making fun of it because it was dumb. And it's yes. okay to make fun of dumb things. There is no better time to launch a video app than during a pandemic. We watched, I think, hours of Tiger King. Hours. Like, the world was craving some kind of entertainment, and Quibi wasn't that. And to say otherwise, I think, is... I don't know. I think it's, like, too optimistic or gray for your own good. Like, we have to all critique these truths. 
Alex. Yeah, I don't think we need to be polite about this, but I mean, I didn't watch Tiger King because I was like three days late and then everyone had already seen it. But I am <laughs> in the third season of a competitive pottery show on HBO. So when it comes to really have gotten through it, I- I've I've done the same thing. Well, I mean, talking about Tiger King and, you know, the pandemic, Netflix reported earnings this week. It was actually a little bit surprising. So, I mean, it's, it's like the best and worst times to be a video streaming. So in Q2, Netflix reported 6.8 million new subscribers. Earnings went up massively. Everyone's streaming. Everyone's watching television. And then Q3 happened, right? And, and you know, obviously Netflix, I think, accelerated a lot of its growth early. And so this quarter was a little bit more disappointing, only gaining 2.2 against analyst estimates of 2.5. I believe Alex Estop did not do well in aftermarket uh, trading. Is that correct? Uh, it did not. It dropped about five, six points uh, last time I checked. But I mean, the $2.5 million number is actually from Netflix. So they missed their own estimate, as mm-hmm. well as the street, which I think was slightly higher. So it's kind of a, a really sad quarter. Uh, the question is, what happens in Q4? Can they bounce back? Can they find more demand? How saturated are their kind of home markets? I don't know anyone who doesn't have Netflix. Maybe that makes me weird, but like, I don't know how many more people they're going to sell to in the US. It's got to be pretty much hollowed out. So I, I wonder if Netflix is going to have to go more international and if that'll shift dollars to you know, content that I might not be as interested in. Well, I, I think international is everything they're doing. You know, as our reporter Manish Singh uh, in India was talking about this week, uh, Netflix is actually considering, or maybe is now official, giving free access for, I, I believe, what, a weekend? Um, yeah. Where it's like all you can eat for two, three days. It's going to be like a big, you know, uh, countrywide thing. And the, the goal here, of course, is to acquire all those users super cheaply. So to build on top of WhatsApp and other chatting apps to make it a big spectacle in much the way that Fortnite has done this with some of its concerts and some other video streaming services have done this. AOC was on, what, Twitch or, or, or whatever, uh, uh, Among Us this week with hundreds of thousands of streams. So That was a surprise, big... Danny. That was a surprise that? for the end of the show. That was the treat that I mentioned earlier. You've now ruined the treat. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't get there. I, I merged it all in. Move forward. Uh, but, but I do, I, you know, obviously Netflix's international growth is key. That's what most analysts are looking for today. But that's a saturated market too. Netflix is buying more content libraries internationally. We've seen this with telenovelas. We've seen this with uh, K-dramas. We've seen this with Bollywood. But it's early. I mean, it's an American company with an American content library. And it's still kind of in this mid-pivot of trying to get more international customers. The opportunity here is also to work with groups like Reliance to actually get better distribution, right? In, in many parts of the world, bandwidth is very, very expensive. And so I, my imagine is, is that Netflix will continually partner with local telecos and other providers in order to kind of subsidize that bandwidth in these sorts of free trial periods. Shifting gears a little bit, I know another company that did much better than Netflix this week. Alex, do you want to take us through kind of Snap's earnings? Yeah, so I'll I'll be quick about this. Snap had a really good quarter that was also bad. So compared to expectations, it was much better than anticipated. The company posted 52% year-over-year revenue growth to $679 a legitimate like, explosion of growth compared to its Q2 growth of 17%, and even better than its Q1 growth of 44%. Investors love this. Shares went up. Big huzzahs for the whole Snap team. On the other side, it still lost $200 million in the quarter. It still burned through $55 million in cash just from its operating expenses. Paid out $192 million in share-based compensation during the quarter. So like, it's one of those Rorschach tests of a quarter. You can either look at the good stuff and be like, ah, Gross margins are improving. Ah, less cash burn. Or you can look at the other side and go, still terribly unprofitable, miles away from gap net income, kind of a mess. But it appears that just like TikTok, Snap is finding a way to excel even in this Facebook world, even in this this platform world, and hold on to a material audience and even grow at 18% year over year to 249 million DAUs in the last quarter. So I'm impressed. 
Do any of us use Snapchat? I, I do, but that's also predictable that the, I do. The Gen Zer does. Okay, <laughs> so I I think this is one of those stories that like Snap Snap just doesn't break into the conversation. At least my conversations, right? I don't see it in the business press. It's too small. It gets overshadowed by Facebook. It certainly gets overshadowed by TikTok these days. Um, but to some way, it's it, it's like the little engine that could. I mean, it is actually growing. It's actually held on. Um, to believe it or not, you know, years ago people were shocked that they didn't sell for three billion to Facebook. And now it's a real company. And, and even though it's still losing money, it is sort of narrowing those losses over time. So in, in some ways, it's been a slower story than Facebook. Facebook went through this kind of wilderness period of trying to figure out if it could ever be profitable. But Snap seems to be on that course. I mean, do we know when they're going to kind of flip the bit and, and go into profitability, Alex? I mean, they've talked about it in the past. If you go back uh, a year or two, they were talking about kind of this big boom to go towards profitability. What they did do was take on a lot of debt. And then that gave them lots more runway. So Snap is actually very well capitalized. They have years and years of runway. I don't know if they have years and years of investor patience on the profitability side, but certainly they have a lot of space to go. I mean, that's why they paid, I think it was like $28 million in interest costs in the quarter because they have this enormous debt load. But I think they're going to need to reduce their share-based compensation to stop diluting their existing shareholder base. That could push up their cash comp requirements and make the whole thing a little bit harder to balance. But you know what? Investors loved this. And so it buys them a couple of quarters of space. Evan Spiegel is still in charge. And you know what? Charging off in his own direction, doing his own thing, not becoming Facebook, you know, and, and succeeding in a way that I, I didn't expect. So sure, there's there's issues with the numbers, Danny, but like on the whole, got to give it to him. You know, I guess I, I, I sound like a snap bull for the first time in my life, but I was, uh, I, I was, no, this is legitimately, the growth number this quarter was legitimately good. I can't take anything away from it. Props and, and, and well done. I want to also give a nod to Snapchat's focus on kind of creating a more developer friendly and accessible platform. We saw Hags, which I think we've talked about a couple of times on this podcast. Have um, a great summer. Good job, Danny. <laughs> Not having awesome greatness. <laughs> well, Hags was an example of a company that was kind of built atop Snapchat as like a virtual yearbook. I think Snapchat is cooler than we realize a lot of the time. And, and I think like we'll see a lot more apps and Gen Z creators building stuff on top of it. That's something TikTok doesn't have. You can't build on top of TikTok yet, but you can build on top of Snapchat. It's also video. That's more interesting to me. I will say combining Snapchat with yearbooks actually makes a ton of sense to me. I think there's a ton of people who would like everything from their yearbook to disappear. Oh, Danny with a long wind to the joke. Um, I think <laughs> Snapchat is cool because we don't know about it. And that's why the kids like it, because Danny and I aren't showing up there with our old man selves. I was going to say, I think Natasha is actually implying that we're not cool. Isn't that what that was like implying. the implication of the bottom? She's like, you know, it's <laughs> where cool kids are. Uh, and we just talked about how we don't have it installed. She wasn't <laughs> implying. She was directly stating that you and I are not cool. And to be clear, I'm not offended by that. I made peace with that when I was 26. You have more board games than books, Danny. You can't talk any smack whatsoever. Now, listen, going to go talk about a couple of smaller rounds in the media space, kicking off with one that I'm kind of excited about called Stir. Natasha, what is up here? So Stir raised a four million seed round. It helps creators and journalists who are already collaborating on a ton of projects share the revenue that those projects can eventually bring in. My first thought on that is it makes a lot of sense, probably formalizing something that is long happening. So not a super innovative concept, but one that does need attention. And we also obviously are seeing more and more careers go solo. And so if you can somehow incentivize the idea of working with other people and kind of spreading that risk a little bit, that's exciting to me. I really like it. I got to say, it's not a huge amount of money, but certainly an interesting space. We saw Homebrew and Ludlow along with XYZ Capital in the round. And you know what? I mean, we talk a lot about like how 
platforms like Substack let individual writers go out there and do their thing. They're pretty rigid. And now Stir doesn't work with Substack yet. It works with YouTube, Patreon, Twitch, and Shopify, and we'll add some more stuff down the road. But like if, if someone told me that I could start like a subscription newsletter, collab with friends and share the money intelligently without having to get super wild about Venmoing each other, that'd be super attractive. I think it would make it easier for folks to go out indie and also to pair up in twos and threes. And that's why I'm in favor of this, Danny. I don't know how big it's going to get or how big the TAM is, but certainly it's a fun way to look at the, uh, the future of creation. I agree 100%. I mean, look, we've, we've seen a ton of collaborations on YouTube, for instance, and it's always this awkward, you know, piece at the end that are like, subscribe to my channel, subscribe to my channel. And like, but my channel is the only one you can subscribe to on this page unless you click on the link. And it's very complicated. Yeah. So I actually think creating better mechanisms, it's basically empowering new business models here. Now, the question is, of course, will those business models be used? Is there enough of, of, of like just a, a flow in this kind of payments category? I'm really skeptical quite frankly. But, you know, that's the beauty of Seed. It's a huge bet. I think it, it's very empowering. The worst case scenario is an acquisition to one of these companies. The best case scenario, it's a really interesting play. So I actually liked it a lot. As we talked about, it was Homebrew, Ludlow Capital, and XYZ Capital. Another example of a startup we're seeing pop up to help support indie creators is Quake. Danny, tell us about Quake. Yes, yeah, so subscription podcasts, uh, not a thing, but they want to make it a thing. And so it raised uh, $2.5 million in Seed um, to create a, basically a, a network of podcast hosts who will pay, you can pay uh, $5 a month or $50 a year to hear from stalwarts like Laura Ingraham, Soledad O'Brien, Gretchen Carlson, Mike Huckabee, Andrew Gillum, Mark Lamont Hill, and Buck Sexton, which is an interesting agglomeration of folks who probably shouldn't be in a room together. No. You know, they want to fall in the line of luminary. I, this is a really tricky space, right? Because there's so much free content. Everything's available everywhere all the time. In fact, one of the beauties of podcasts is that they're mostly driven by RSS feeds. So you can use Apple Podcasts, you can use Overcast, you can use Spotify, you can use everything. And it's not that exclusive outside of a couple of shows like Joe Rogan, which have been bought out you know, by Spotify earlier this year. So I, I, I think it's interesting. I, I do think there's a potential in politics, much in the way that The Athletic has done sports. It's one of those categories that tends to get people really, really engaged. They've described it as the next generation of satellite radio. You know, I, I could see that particular category doing well. Obviously, I don't think it's going to expand outside of that. But what we've heard from the Luminary Experiment, they raised about $100 billion. They were going to go out there and do the same thing. Lots of hosts that were going to be unique to the platform. And uh, it didn't go that well early on. Now, things could have gotten better at Luminary. I don't want to be super negative about it. But the first stats we saw out of the experiment weren't particularly great. It had a very high burn rate. And I, I'm just not sure if the paid podcast world actually works here in America. Natasha, we know that in China, the podcast market is a huge space. People pay for shows there. It's just a different cultural norm. Do you think that with two and a half million and Laura Ingram, Quake has a shot? So, I mean, people pay to fall asleep to Matthew McConaughey. I think people are... <laughs> crazier than we think when it comes to when you say people do you mean a certain person in new jersey <laughs> not me <laughs> never me Matthew McConaughey? <laughs> no i th <laughs> well that's 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 com's whole thing right no it's one of their offerings but oh, no see. jokes aside i think like the they're... we're offering you matthew mcconaughey <laughs> and How about that a sean is connery all? at night <laughs> I don't want this to, to get into a weird conversation, so I'm going <laughs> to answer your question more directly, Alex. Yeah, I think yeah just in the, avoid Danny. <laughs> I think in the States, I think what Danny said is right. Politics has a fanatic aspect of it that people will pay for, so maybe that will be its success. 
But I think that overall, the way that we view education in the States is not something that we pay for. China, with families all across the income level, families pay for their kids for education. I think one of the highest paid podcasts in China is a teacher talking about college entrance exams. Some data we have is that the podcast paid podcast market in China is worth seven billion. I, I wouldn't say that Quake is like, you know, ahead of the curve or the future. This has been tried and failed. And I think we just need to remember it requires much more than Laura to get us to rapidly adopt it. It requires all of us to think differently about how we pay for education. Yeah. I, I'm optimistic, though, about that because they only raised two and a half million. They can't get too far over their skis. They can't build a cost yeah. structure that's going to be absolutely insane. Luminary felt in microcosm a bit like we raise a bunch of money, build out a stable of stuff, go out there, launch it, and then hope everyone signs up for it. With two and a half million, they're going to have to keep it pretty small. And maybe that will succeed. And as right. always with media things, my bias is let it work because I would like to keep doing this for a while. So, Danny, sorry. I'll make a I'll make a note. You know, Meg Whitman, who was the CEO of Quibi, um, once said in an interview that she was targeting a hundred thousand dollars per minute of a Quibi video in terms of production values. I think one of the things we don't talk enough about is like how much does it cost to create good content? You know, podcasts are still in this nice world where it's like, look, if you have high quality equipment, it's actually a capital cost. It's not an operational cost. Um, you can actually produce amazing work quite cheaply. You know, that's one of the magics of podcasts. So, you know, I, I agree with you, Alex. I actually think. You know, Luminary wanted, I think they described themselves as the HBO of, of podcasting. They wanted these great stories, really in-depth, lots of production values. I'm not sure listeners are able to actually see that. And that's part of the challenge when you're sort of building these business models. You know, it'd be fun to do one week would be to actually put the show out without Chris making it sound good. Because uh, I, I think people wouldn't understand how much of how much he improved the show. And that's where the production advice comes in in the audio world. But we can do it with a team of four. We can do the show with, with four of us. And a video requires... 40. So there is a diminished cost, but certainly I don't want to, I don't want to knock how much work goes into making the show actually operate a couple of times a week. No, I mean, look, the committee on presidential debates slash Chris Gates, you know, has to give me a mute button because he cuts at least 25 <laughs> minutes of my content out every episode. That saves oh your job. Oh my God. <laughs> let's get into some more funny rounds here really quickly. Let's talk about Danny. Is this pronounced a, a, a Bodu? I think. So we're going to go into a housing section. So there's a couple of different housing startups that came out this week. Housing is obviously on fire. Housing sales are up. People are moving. The, you know, the migration rate in the United States has declined every decade since the 1970s. It is zoomed up as people yep. are escaping the major cities, kind of reconfiguring their lives for coronavirus. And so Abodu is one example of this, raising, uh, I believe, three and a half million uh, led by initialized capital from our former colleague, Kim Mai Cutler who was famous for talking about vomiting anarchists on a housing essay multiple years ago. What she was investing in with this company is, is the future of what are known as accessory dwelling units, or ADUs. And so if you have a classic single-family property lot, in most states you have some sort of capability to add an accessory unit, basically a, a detached shelter. It's usually a bedroom, it might be one or two rooms, onto the property, generally within the zoning codes. And, uh, you know, they're sometimes known as in-law units or ex-law units or whatever the case may be. Uh, it sort of depends on your family dynamics. Uh, but Abodu wants to make that super cheap and easy. So for around $200,000, depending on the unit, plus some uh, accoutrements, if you want more premium features, they will basically construct in a factory an uh, accessory dwelling unit, put it onto a semi-truck, drive it over to your house, use a crane to move it literally over your house into your backyard, wherever the wow. siding is and install it. And, and the beauty of it is it, it takes about 14 weeks with permitting. They're actually able to get the permits in San Jose now in less than an hour. Other wow. cities are a little bit longer. 
But what's interesting is, is that they don't need a lot of time in your backyard. This is sort of the magic that they're sort of focused on. They need about two weeks from start to finish. So they prep the site and then they just put the house in. And in almost no time, you basically have this unit ready to go. So I think this is really, really cool. I did, this reminds me a lot of the, just the tiny house shows that I've seen a lot of during the pandemic because I've had a lot of time on my couch. Uh, people love tiny houses and they love to put them in their backyard and expand their square footage, have more room for more people. 200K seems, I don't know, expensive to some degree, but I mean, I'm sure a lot of folks can afford that much cheaper than buying a bigger house, I would presume. I think this is going to be hot, Danny. I would not be surprised to see it do well. Though kind of a small round for something that has such large capital expenses. Yeah, the, the, the startup was a little concerned about talking about, you know, the 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 costs and how much money they had raised and stuff like this. And it, it's really like, it, this is truly equity, right? Almost all of this is debt-driven. So from a homeowner's perspective, they're using HELOCs, home mm-hmm. equity lines of credit, or other mortgage products to buy the houses. And and because it's really built to order, they don't have a, like the factory overhead. Cost. I mean, they're not building like a massive facility for tens of millions, they're not quibbing it. That's going to be our verb for the for the next week or two. So you know their cost structure is actually a lot more reasonable than it looks. And and what's interesting to me is is in the past ADUs have been basically investment properties. So you build this little unit on your uh, property, you rent it out for fifteen hundred or whatever, two thousand bucks a month. It's a nice way to like sort of pay the taxes, pay the mortgage, etc. What's happened post coronavirus though is that with kids coming home, with grandparents looking to separate and and potentially socially distance from the rest of the family. There's just actually a lot more focus on the family side going on now, less than the renter side. So I think some of the controversy, obviously, California's had a lot of controversy around ADUs. They passed a law earlier uh, last year and then enforced starting this year that basically make ADUs almost mandatory, a requirement. You can basically build them at will. And and that's actually been you know very sensitive because of the investor side. I think as more and more families use, use them for their own sort of members, it'll be less controversial and much more the norm in many neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited for the startup. I think that the quality will be so key here. I saw the pictures in your story, Danny, and I was super impressed. If anyone needs to be cheered up, go look at Amazon tiny homes that they sell. And it's just like a perfect example of the opposite of what this company offers. Super just horrible quality. And shows like that, that there's a huge demand Wait, there's for bad them. quality on Amazon. I have I know, no right? idea. That's why <laughs> I always buy it. my caskets from Costco. Those people, <laughs> Costco, where you get caskets. They didn't really want me to say that. We're, we're going to get emails. <laughs> we're going to get emails. <laughs> Don't email us. There was one other housing round I talked about uh, this week, four and a half million into a company called WOHO, which stands for whole house, but not really a whole house because it actually... The, the, don't think about it too hard. But WoHo, they're actually trying to rebuild modular buildings. I don't want to get into it. It's actually really complicated. But the idea is like you, you've seen some modular apartment buildings where you can kind of just stick the apartment units into each slot mm. and you sort of have this magical building. These are actually like Lego bricks that actually connect together with each other. And they allow people to basically build multi-floor buildings in, in groups, right? So you can connect these components together. It might be two floors for one component. And they all connect together, allowing more flexibility and green. So the part that I love here is that we're seeing more innovation around construction, more innovation around green building materials, and, and more innovation around speed. Because one of the biggest challenges with most of these categories, this is actually the problem with ADUs, Alex, is that in California, the average ADU is like $350,000 to build. Wow. And it takes two to three years. Years? Right? That's the market norm. Three to five, you know, two to three years, because you got to get permits. So much you changes. Get a general contractor, you got to do property work. You know, being able to do it in 10 to 12 weeks, two weeks in your backyard, get a permit in a day, it really changes the game. Yeah, it could really shake things up. Throwing just one more quick round onto the, the um, housing-ish 
pile of stuff, if you will. RV shares raised over $100 million in a new round for its RV rental business. So if you were hoping to get out there in the great American West, for example, in an RV, companies that are now trying to rent those to you have a lot more capital. Uh, RV share is really cool. It's actually based in Akron, Ohio, which is, I think, the first Akron company we've ever had on the show. I just like saying Akron, and I really hope that's how you pronounce it, not Akron, because then I'm going to sound really dumb. It, it is Akron uh, as you. a local or one-time local. Ah, thank you, Danny. Bringing that Midwest vibe to the show. Thank you. Company saw a 650% increase in bookings from April to May of this year. Why? Well, because we were all stuck at home going stir freaking crazy. So everyone went out in, in a, I almost said Airbnb, which is my next point, in an RV. And so obviously a lot of demand, more capital, lets them get more vehicles, get more vehicles out there on the road, more revenue, huzzah. My read, guys, is that this is just the Airbnb story again, but with wheels. Airbnb used to do international, now they do local. This is the same kind of concept. I'm actually like less bullish on RV companies than I was when we first talked about them maybe like two or three months ago. And like a lot of the like I need to get out of my apartment conversations were happening. I think like I'm I'm much more bullish on like local trips being stable and staying somewhere. I think Why? RVs I think RVs were like a definitely like an example of how traveling looks in a pandemic, but I just don't see that kind of mass adoption as much as we'll see people just wanting to stay put somewhere. Well, I mean, there's a lot of bets, so we'll find out really soon. Just to wrap this up, Outdoorsy, which is peer-to-peer -peer RV rentals, has raised, I think it was an $88 million round somewhat recently, or $88 million in total. Cabana, which is doing kind of like RVs slash hotels, raised money. And then there's Kibo, which is also out there kind of doing van stuff. So a lot of money going into this, a lot of bets. So we'll see who is right, Natasha and the stay-at-home crew or the RV crew, and they get out there and crash crew. Talking about stay at home, Natasha, you had a piece this week talking about hackers who, you know, went from digital nomads to being in San Francisco to being digital nomads. And now I guess they're going back to the stay at home model of, of hacker houses. Tell me about the, the Pineapple Palace and other <laughs> hacker houses that are out there. We're seeing kind of the conversation on work from anywhere turn into founder homes and collectives. There's a couple type of houses that kind of fall into the bracket of hacker homes, which yes, do not email me. I know they're not new, but they are new given the fact that we can choose to work from anywhere now and we are choosing to live with people who are exactly like us. <laughs> so there's the Pineapple Palace, which is a house based in Los Angeles and brings together a ton of founders. There is Anthony Scaramucci's son, AJ Scaramucci, and his co-founder of Pandos have kind of created a company together and have invited their friends there's also the Launch House, which is, I think has gotten a little bit more attention because they're branding themselves as like a future of YC of sorts. They're building up products, live tweeting it, have an open application process and make TikToks. And I'll pause there. I'm curious what you both what, think. One of those is not like the others. Yeah. <laughs> they're building companies, selling customers and making TikToks. Um, <laughs> it, it sounds like, like, a, like a 1980s, 2020 investigation into the, into the drug wars. But <laughs> um, I, I think it's amazing. I mean, you know, we, we can talk about cultural affiliations and whatnot. I, I think, you know, obviously the internet has democratized building companies more and more around the world. It's still great to get feedback from people nearby, right? Yeah. So I think we're seeing this all across the United States, around the world. And, and I, I do think that they're a little bit temporary. I mean, I, I've seen hacker houses kind of rise and fall over the last decade quite consistently. They never seem to kind of last. And mostly because they're very community and, and like community leadership driven. You know, there's someone who's actually building that community around. So you mentioned YC, Paul Graham, Jessica Livingston, and a bunch of others who who helped to create that community and hold it together and glue it for a period of time. The same things require for every one of these houses. So so long as that person is there and doing the work, 
I think those houses will do well. You know, otherwise they sort of fade away and, and a whole new crop will show up. I mean, we've seen a lot of this uh, recently reported about, you know, TikTok houses and so forth, and they're having the exact same issues you think they would have. Some successes, some failures, some, you know, who's not getting paid, who's not paying rent, you know, shutoffs and scammers and all that. All that's kind of just the noise in the boom of this sort of collaborative work. Uh, you, you know, I, I want to be cynical about this and just call them party houses, but the other half of me is like, a lot of really good ideas have come out of some, yeah. you know, less serious environments. And so maybe, maybe this will pan out. I don't want to be, you know, old man, fuddy-duddy, annoyed with the kids. To bring the cynical perspective, though, I think a number of people kind of talked to me off the record that they're not a fan. A couple of investors I talked to said that they would honestly urge their founders to leave a hacker house if they invested in them. Well, some investors are investing in these houses as a concept, doing product <laughs> placement and holding pitch competitions. There is definitely something to be said about the kinds of people in the houses. They do lack diversity, most skew male. And I think that if there was a house that got a mix of people right and a diverse mix of people is what I mean by that, then I see, I'm much more optimistic on them. But right now, I don't think that they're building for every kind of amazing founder out there. I think they're building for a very specific kind of founder who can afford to live stream their lives. Well, so to wrap up these hacker houses, you know, I used to say that they're Petri dishes, but I used to mean Petri dishes for innovation. And now the Petri dish has a little bit of a new mentality. So, so let's move on to a more traditional accelerator if you don't want to be in a Petri dish. So, so Ready, Set, Raise, I guess, has, has uh, a new class coming out. So Natasha, you talk to them. Let us know what's going on over there. Yeah. So Female Founders Alliance is a Seattle-based network for female founders and people who identify as female. They've been running an accelerator for the past few years, and they just announced their third class. And I think the most interesting part of this accelerator was that I was talking to the creator of it, Leslie Feinzeig, and she said that before the pandemic, we had realized that the accelerator was in some way working, but we also needed to see what we could change about it and what we could change about it was no longer creating our programming around the idea of a demo day. Most obviously because there's no physical opportunity for demo days, but also because it's not the realistic way in which female founders raise money. It does reward a certain type of personality, demo days. And so Ready, Set, Raise, this new accelerator is trying to kind of take a step back. They're still going to have one, but they're not going to create all their programming around getting a five minute tight pitch where you make a room full of investors and journalists laugh and tweet about you, which I think is an important conversation to have. And it's uh, equity free. What does that mean in this context? Is there no capital involved? Yeah, so no capital involved and they don't take a stake in the company. It's eight weeks long. They usually had remote programming as two thirds the programming anyways. So it was a very easy adaption. Um, and then the other kind of note about this class that I think is also thoughtful was, you know, usually Ready, Set, Raise would offer childcare for free for the participants. Now it's just welcoming the kids onto the Zoom calls and very much making that part of their culture, which I think is a great thing. You know, in the last Y Combinator class, I think we all kind of noticed that it seemed a little bit less diverse. And so I'm always kind of excited by things that are going to help to kind of push back against that trend. This uh, looks really cool. The Envision Accelerator we talked about a couple of months ago, kind of a similar idea. Uh, Natasha, can these actually, these programs actually change the numbers or are these just things that are going to help a little bit? Alex, I think that you wrote a piece recently about how women who were going to start a company at one point no longer will because of the pandemic. And I yeah. think when I see these kind of focused accelerators that don't take equity, so they give you kind of a comfort and accessible way to think about starting a company. When I see that, I think that could change minds in a way that isn't as flashy as YC or very important 
aspect of investing in them. But I think it it can bring like that important energy back to a group of people that isn't getting invested in enough. All right. Well, guys, we have gone a little bit long. We're going to cut our fun section at the end about AOC and Twitch because Danny spurled that for us. But as always, a treat to see you both. We're back Monday morning with more equity. We'll see you then.